Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. We've researched musicals this year. Only this year? I'm pretty sure we started with the 2020 pandemic. And wrote some sketches to add cheer. You mean like the detergent? They won't get as clean, but we're still filled with joy. Our podcast helps you learn cool facts. Packed with facts and on the attack. I think we're onto something here. People judge, misinformed, leaving out some facts, not talking musical history. Enjoy, Enjoy the show. show. Relax. We're sweet with such a sassy kick. The sweetest and sassy sprite. Research tomorrow and yesterday. Yesterday? All my troubles seem so far away. Let's grow together. Here we go. Subscribe to TMH. Here we go. I think we're on to something here. But one, one thing we know, it's only part luck. And, and so we're, we're putting, putting on our best shows. Recording on our mics. We are we starting, starting for life. Big dreams becoming real tonight. So look at us and this opportunity. You're witnessing our moment, see? Our big opportunity. We won't waste it. Guaranteed. I think we're onto something here, yes, yes. I think we're onto something here, yes, yes. I think we're onto something here. I think we're onto something here, yes, yes. Welcome back, folks, to TMH Talking Musical History, the podcast that looks at musicals through the inclusive lens of our story. And uh, Sarah Silverman, this is for you. Uh, your podcast squad cannot stop us. Talking musical history cannot be stopped. Nay, will not be stopped. A hundred years, Kevin and Chris, Kevin and Chris, everywhere. Put musicals in perspective with our Powerful podcast. <laughs> Powerful podcast on the attack. Before we get too far into things, I do want to give a shout out to Tracy Komarmi, who uh, gifted us recently uh, Broadway HD. So we're really excited to take full advantage of that and use that in future podcasts. Yes. Broadway HD is an amazing app on Apple TVs or other devices that you can watch real Broadway shows. It's pretty incredible. The, the Toxic Avenger Broadway musical is on that. It's, I'm, I'm so excited. We will get to that for our Halloween episode. Mm, that's what's up. With a special guest from another podcast as mm, well. I'm really excited. So uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, Annie the Musical, one of my uh, personal favorites. I know we're here talking about Annie, and it's a, it's a fan favorite. And Aileen Quinlan, who played Annie in the 1982 movie, was Hava in the touring company cast of Fiddler on the Roof. Wow, I have never actually seen Fiddler on the Roof, so that's uh, that's pretty cool, definitely. Yeah, um, my cousin and I were flipping through our playbill, and we see Aileen Quinlan, and I go, that sounds familiar, and I look in the credits, and sure enough, she was Annie, so... She was Annie indeed. <laughs> I, I saw Annie. You did. <laughs> uh, and was she okay? Was she okay, Kevin? Annie was okay, she was okay, she was okay, Hava! You know that Annie was okay. She was okay, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> the origin of Annie Ooh, yeah. dates back to 1885 when a poet, James Whitcomb Riley, 
wrote originally titled The Elf Child and then decided to change it to Little Orphan Alley, named after a real-life orphan that inspired him to write the poem. And because of a printing press discrepancy... Discrepancy? I bet, like, I bet, like, someone was like, you know what? I don't like the name Alley. I'm going to change it to Annie. Annie. You know, you got to watch out for the last person that touches the press. It's really interesting because like that, uh, the, the poem that was created that you're, you're talking about, it's like, it kind of sounds like a horror poem. It does. Here it is. And little orphan Annie says, when the blaze is blue and the lamp wick sputters and the wind goes goo and you hear the crickets quit. gray and the lightning bugs in dew is all scrunched away you better mind your parents and your teachers fond and dear and cherish them and loves you and dry an orphan's tear and help poor needy ones in clusters all about or the goblins will get you if you don't watch out if you don't watch out that that that's like the opening scene of a horror film right there. Yeah, it's basically it was a, it was a more a poem for kids to learn how to be more civilized in society. Annie's an interesting musical cuz I feel like it's about uh child exploitation, Absolutely. but like at the same time it is actively exploiting children while it's kind of discussing child exploitation. It's interesting that it came from Be Well Behaved uh, space. Well, and that leads us to the original creator of the comic. Right. Which right. is what Annie the Musical is ultimately based on. And we'll get to that story a little later. Harold Gray took the name Little Orphan Annie, created in 1924. A little orphan named Annie invited to stay with Oliver Warbucks and his wife. She was always pushing Annie away, but then Daddy Warbucks would come in last minute to save Annie. The strip attached adult readers with political commentary regarding organized labor, and Gray himself thought child labor was a good thing. The New Deal and communism was also discussed in the original comic. I think it's really interesting that, like, the wife seems to be the bad guy in this initial, like, all other, like, most iterations that people know, like, the Warbucks character doesn't have a significant other. She was written out. It, it, it seems kind of terrible because it's like, A, like, uh, she can't have her own kid, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it, it implies that. And then B, like, you know, it implies that she's jealous of the existence of Annie. I would hope uh, Mrs. Warbucks would uh, uh, actually not be so awful towards Annie. Uh, probably should be, like, fleshed out more and why. Like, uh, you know, most of the stories, like we said, she's been cut. Yeah. I mean, I have never seen her. I did do some research and look into original comics. Originally, Annie's home was run by a woman named Miss Asthma. Oh, Miss Asthma. Um, And then later replaced by Miss Treat. That she was older as well. She was a very old woman. Kind of viewed in more of like a wicked witch kind of a, a tormenting. So you're you're trying to suggest she was not a treat. But yeah, and then so Miss Asthma is then turned into Miss Hannigan in the musical adaptation, as we all know. I don't know. I, I, I I feel like Miss Hannigan is a better choice for a name. Annie's catchphrases yes. were G Whiskers and Leaping Lizards, which makes it into the nineteen eighty two and also 
ton of in the nineteen ninety five version. Yeah, no, I uh, um like Leap and Lizards. We should have had a Leap and Lizard counter, but I I, I felt like we shouldn't have. Sandy Annie's dog first premiered in nineteen twenty five as no particular breed as she's working for Mr. Bottle's grocery store. Oliver Warbucks joined prior to Sandy as a large, powerful, built, bald man, the idealist capitalist who typically wears a tuxedo. Punjab was detailed as an eight-foot-tall Indian man. Wait, eight feet tall? Yes. That's ridiculous. Like, The Rock and, like, Tommy Lister aren't eight feet tall. Come on. No, I don't. (laughs) No, I believe it because it's a cartoon. It doesn't matter. You can write whatever you want. Like, you know. Punjab, the name, actually, uh, just for for those of you that are feeling a little uh, cringy, Punjab is a state bordering Pakistan and is the heart of India's Sikh community. But but definitely, if you're ever in the area, you should visit the Golden Temple, surrounded by the Pool of Nectar. It's a major pilgrimage site. Movie, which is, we're going to talk mainly about the movie because that is the most accessible form. Yeah, and we, we watched uh, uh, multiple movies, right? We watched the 1982 film. We watched the 1999 uh, ABC film. Actually, and I found out how much that cost to make. Oh, you did? I wow. did. And uh, um, we also watched the 2014 uh, Jamie Foxx uh, one as well. And we even watched the 1995 any a royal adventure. We we talked about that, and I still tried to put it out of my head. The only reason why we ended up watching it really is because like it had George Hearn as Daddy Warbucks, who was Sweeney, it was fun. Sweeney Todd. It was fun to watch. It was fun to watch. And that also had Darth Sidious, Ian McDermott. Yeah, um, Ian McDermott. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, uh, Joan Collins. There right? is a Joan Collins. Joan yeah. Collins. Most people in the 1995 version are one note, and that's probably why we never saw it up until this point. I also saw the cartoon version. I mean, Joan Collins version. has been in a ton of things, though. Come on, be sure. a little fair. She's rich and famous. <laughs> I give her credit for being rich and famous. It, it does. And unfortunately, there is only one song that is tomorrow. I mean, she did the Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dream Code in 1999. And she was in The Big Sleep, which is kind of huge. That's a okay. great film. I mean, you know, she was in Star Trek. In the movie that we saw with Punjab in it, uh, the most recognizable and the most famous actor is Jeffrey Holder, who's a legendary actor, dancer, former Bond villain. He was also the 7-Up genie. Before we were even a thought, he was in Aladdin as probably the genie as well in 1958. He choreographed the season five opening credits of The Cosby Show. Like, Jeffrey Holder, I will say, he is an amazing talent. Oh, yeah. Well, obviously, right? Uh, To mention one of our other podcasts, he helped out with the original musical of The Wiz in 1975 uh, and directed that in costume design and won a Tony Award for Best Costume Design and Best Direction of a Musical. And then he did the revival again in 1984, where he uh, once again directed and did costume design. Starting in 1930, local Chicago radio. If you saw the movie A Christmas Story, you might remember... Who's the little chatterbox, the one with pretty autumn locks? Whom do you see? It's little orphan Annie. She and Sandy make a pair. They never seem to have a care. Cute little she, this little orphan Annie. 
bright eyes, mm-hmm. cheeks of rosy glow. There's a store of healthiness handy. Mite size, always on the go. If you want to know, arf, says Sandy. Always wears a sunny smile. Now wouldn't it be worth the while if you could be like little orphan Annie? <laughs> that sounds so fun. So that was the radio intro to Little Orphan Annie. Little Orphan Annie and yeah. starred Shirley Bell Cole as Annie. Yeah, and it's like uh, this is like one of the earliest like how how radio started to be more of a corporate thing. They had this sponsorship, right? With Ovaltine. Ovaltine. Hey kids, are you failing in school? Right, because Ovaltine was because Ovaltine was supposed to somehow magically help you, like with its vitamins it and minerals and really great you, stuff. Like because it was during the depression, kids right. were skinny; they weren't eating because well, they didn't have they any didn't food. food. So here's yes. something: don't give that them food, give them Ovaltine. Help you let, fatten. Let up. them have Ovaltine. Yes, the original Annie Shirley Belcole actually never drank Ovaltine because why would was, you? I mean, hmm? she was good. She was like, I, I was, I was a chubby kid. I didn't need it. <laughs> Here we go. Politically, Gray was considered very conservative and pro-child labor. As a hater of FDR and the New Deal, he was essentially Oliver Warbucks without an Annie to come into his life. Although he wrote and stood by his decision to put a black child in his comic along with Annie as a junior commando, he stated that it was not his view on inclusion after Southerners were angry with him, but it was Annie's. So, I mean, that's actually uh, uh, that's actually something important to sort of like look at. In Gray's hatred for FDR, he kills off Daddy Warbucks. Oliver Warbucks could not live in the same world as FDR. Um, yeah, it, like uh, uh, it, I think it is really interesting that like he would stay true to. Annie's character realizing that it's the right thing to do while still also being crazy about it. Yeah. Still another crazy racist man. Eventually he was forced by pressure from unions, the clergy and intellectuals to tone down the violence or it would be canceled. So there was just like random violence at Annie. That's yeah, so interesting. A, it's not um, like it was Johnny Quest. Apparently it was, it was, though so I it, guess it came out around the same time. Warbucks, as, Warbucks is a war profiteer. Right. So I guess I mean, it makes sense that that would be what would happen. And it came out around the same time as Popeye, Dick Tracy, who also, hmm, Popeye. they have, well, Popeye's a little bit different. I mean, yeah, super violent still, but yeah. Um, Dick Tracy, which she guest stars on Dick Tracy, even up to today. Bringing up Father, the Gumps, Blondie, Moon Mullins, Joe Palooka, Little Abner, and Tolly the Toiler. Gray eventually died in 1968 from cancer. Seven other artists took up the mantle before the comic was eventually canceled on May 13th of 2010. That's a really long run. Yes. <laughs> I wonder if Garfield will get that much of a run. From le- the leap from the comic to the musical... Starting in December of 1969, when Martin Charnin, who's a lyricist, was buying Christmas presents and just happened to pick up the book, The Life and Hard Times of Little Orphan Annie, 1935 to 45. Charnin's been uh, keeping the the mantle, the torch burning of Annie for uh, uh, the modern era, definitely. Yes, for now over 50 years. Right? 
Yes. <laughs> Keep the candle burning. Took the idea to writer Thomas Meehan, who was at first reluctant. He didn't want to do it. And then he talked him into it and also brought along composer Charles Strauss. Yes, we have heard these names before. Charles Strauss was also in, he was also responsible for Bye Bye Birdie. Birdie's coming down the road at some point. Another lesser known musical that we did also talk about, All American, which was in our producer's episode. Thomas Meehan, you might have to thank him for these productions of, you know. He's pretty prolific. The producers, (laughs) which he was a big friend of Mel Brooks. When Thomas Meehan died, Mel Brooks tweeted, Stunned by the news that my friend co-writer Thomas Meehan has died. I'll miss his sweetness and talent. We have all lost a giant of the theater. And he worked together on Hairspray as well with Mark O'Connell. So between Annie producers and Hairspray, he's earned three Tony Awards. That's a lot. Definitely. That's pretty good success. In addition to his Mel Brooks musicals, he also wrote Cry Baby, Elf the Musical, Limelight, The Story of Charlie Chaplin. That's a pretty uh, good set of uh, shows. And Martin Charnin... You are going to know him from Annie, most likely. Although, interesting note, following Annie, he did something called Bar Mitzvah Boy. Is that another musical? It's another musical. I have never heard of it, but I figured it was interesting. Is Bar Mitzvah Boy a superhero? After acquiring the rights to turn it into a musical, he removed and added songs. Easy Street was originally titled That's the Way It Goes. Miss Hannigan's Little Girls was a, originally a duet with Annie featuring completely different lyrics. It was called Just Wait. The original opening number was called Apples with an Apple Seller. Feed the little girls apples, apples. <laughs> apples gets replaced by Maybe as the opening song. In addition to replacing songs, they also replaced Little Girls. Film education, the the two things they say never put in a film. Don't put kids or animals in film. Blow up your budget. And Annie, luckily, has a lot of both. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which, the original... Like skating elephants. Oh my, yeah. Like, could you imagine if that went wrong and, like, the right, elephant right. would have just, like, crushed Annie? Yeah, like elephant <laughs> crushing a kid because he can't stop on skates. Come on! As well as replacing songs, they also replaced Annie's. The original girl was Kristen Vigard, but then in a last-minute change, when the production was in Connecticut, Andrea McArdle was given the role. She also has a cameo appearance in the 1999 movie in the song NYC. Original casting for Oliver in Annie was Reed Shelton. Agnes Hannigan was Dorothy Luden, who apparently hated kids. Or dogs. She hated dogs and kids. Um, so it's a wonder as to why she was there. You can even see that there's a little interview I saw of Reed Shelton, Dorothy Luden, and Andrea McArdle. And it's like she's inching away from Andrea more towards Reed. And it's just, it's so interesting. Like that is who started the role of Hannigan. Rooster. In the U.S. Touring Company 
1978 was Gary Beach, who was Roger Elizabeth Dubree in The Producers. Hannigan in The Revival, 1997, was Nell Carter. Wow, like, right? That would be amazing to see. She's a great talent. First African-American to play Hannigan. But in the advertisements, they did not use footage of her. They used an image of a white woman. And then she was replaced by Sally Struthers. Sally Struthers? Yes. Oh, boy. Give me a break. Because I'm sure I deserve it. But, I mean, like, Sally Struthers was on TV in the 80s, too, I guess. So oh, no, I mean, I I'm guess not... you just flip around and just say, oh, 80s star on TV. You know. That's just fine. And, and no shade at Sally Struthers. She was, I mean, they're yeah, both. Yeah, no, she's talented. There is a difference. There is a difference. And although they were, there, were, there was press about her being in Annie, but there wasn't the visual imagery and the representation should have deserved in that time. Because, I mean, also, talking back to, to The Wiz, she was Eveline. Yeah. Yeah, that's terrific. Some other stage premieres that also came out around that time was also The Wiz. It made it Broadway debut alongside Annie and Grease. Other notable Miss Hannigans were Betty Hutton, Faith Prince, who we talked about that was in Guys and Dolls, and The Incomparable. Hardcore lesbian power with Jane Lynch. Like, uh, watching Jane Lynch as Miss Hannigan would be phenomenal. And we saw a clip of that, so that was that was yeah, amazing. I mean, I, I would want to see the whole thing. The most famous on the stage in Annie. And we talked about her longtime husband in The Producers, Sarah Jessica Parker. Hands down, famous Annie that ever was. Sandy, the dog, actually the trainer Bill Berloni and his wife started originally with Annie in the 70s, getting a dog and training backup dogs as well in case one of the dogs couldn't perform and have multiple dogs for the role of Sandy. Yeah, I think what he had like four dogs at a time at like one point. Yeah. And he also has worked with some other amazing show dogs, including Toto. Ooh. Mm, yeah, that's that's high quality uh, a dogging. Uh, that's like original girl and her dog, right? Yeah. The A list of dog. I mean, like uh, who else would be on the A list? Benji. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Nana from Peter Pan. Yeah, and Bruiser. And there was an unsuccessful sequel, Annie Two, Miss Hannigan's Revenge, later staged off Broadway as Annie Warbucks. Some songs can be heard on the 30th anniversary edition in the 2008 recording, including Carol Burnett, Sally Struthers, Kathy Lee Gifford, Andrea McArdle, Gary Beach, Thomas Meehan in 1980 published and then reprinted in 2014 a novel of the script for the musical as a 20th century update of Charles Dickens' Oliver Twist, which we are going to revisit Oliver soon as well. Yay. I'll do anything for that, dear. In the book, we delve more into the child abuse with Miss Hannigan and in more of a witch-like creature I mentioned earlier, and Annie lives in Hooverville for a while with an apple seller after escaping to a cafe finding Sandy involving a secret plot with Pinkerton hired by Warbucks. And we learn that Lily St. Regis's real name 
is Muriel Jane Gumper. It sweeps the Tonys, winning seven out of ten nominations in 1977 for Best Musical, Book, Original Score, Leading Actress, Dorothy Loudon, Choreography, Scene Design, and Costume Design. In addition to winning the Drama Desk Award for Outstanding Musical, Book, Featured Actress, Loudon again, Director, Choreographer, Music, Lyrics, and Costume. No surprise that in chorus, it followed up with the Grammy for Best Cast Show as well in 1978, and then in 1982, Favorite Annie Representation, and I think just because the three villains, Carol Burnett, Tim Curry, Bernadette Peters. I mean, Alan Cumming did a very good job. I'm um, not disputing that he didn't. Just the chemistry between those three. I love Alan Cumming. I love Kristen Chenoweth. Kathy Bates is an amazing actor. Yeah, and there's and there's no real rooster in uh, the 2014 version, unfortunately. No. I mean, like we we talked about like how he's kind of a hybrid character with. Did, so Martin Trennan did not like because yeah, like because in two 2004 he said he didn't like the two films, but then in 2014 he ultimately said that it is a period piece. It belongs in the 30s. When you take it out, it loses the context and the message. It doesn't have to. Uh, Jamie Foxx should have been Daddy Warbucks. They shouldn't have yeah. tried to make it different. They should have, uh, you know, like talked about war profiteering. Yeah, totally. I mean, but they went soft. They went like, oh, let's make this movie with Jamie Foxx. And no, and I know he wants you know, to, like, everyone thinks that uh, uh, Annie. Um, needs to be a wholesome family uh, film. It's got a dark side. Well, the story as to why Warbucks became rich, even. In 1982, Oliver Warbucks losing his brother at a very young age and not being able to help in that. So you have a loss of a brother. And then, and then in 2014, Mr. Stax, his mom worked very hard. That's why he became rich. Because his mom worked hard. The, like, uh, capitalist mantra, I worked hard, and that's how I was able to, to do well. But there, at least there, he, there, There's just a yeah, bit... Uh, there's a, just, uh, there's a, a difference. There's a bit of inauthenticity in that in that telling. And no, and I, I get what you're saying, that, like, it's more interesting of a story if, like, you know, he's, like, pushed to earn his money through feeling bad about his brother dying and not being able to do anything about it. And I think that's... Um, definitely an interesting story to tell, but I don't feel like anyone who's like super rags to riches kind of person like has a story like that. Aileen Quinn actually was nominated and won Young Artist Award for Best Young Motion Picture Actress. And on the other end of the spectrum, a Golden Raspberry Award for Worst Supporting Actress. That's so sad. Why... Is she, was she too adorable? Did they just find her too adorable? And there were complaints that they cutesied her up too much. I mean, it's Annie. It's accurate. Like, like the way the the way they felt like they depicted it. If you read the comic strips, if you read like the Chicago Tribune with with that, like, yeah, that's that's Annie. It would have been really cool to sort of like use that as an ability to like talk about the idea of like you know conservative ideas versus liberal ideas and like what makes. America push forward and get better. That's why I think it's really important for Annie to be a Christmas story specifically. 
Um, I have a problem with the 1982 version not being uh, in that period of time. It would be like taking a Christmas carol and like also moving it to summer. Well, and that's why they do make up for it in some ways, because they do have... Although they never sang, there's two songs that they never sang. And that is, we'd like to thank you, Mr. Hoover, for really showing us the way, which is a total like F you, Herbert Hoover. And a new deal for Christmas. Yeah. And like even even without a new deal for Christmas, I mean, the whole the the, the whole Annie is really that. Uh, Annie gets a family for Christmas. Yeah. That's that's really what the show is, right? And at the end of the show, they have a box re-rolled out, and then Sandy pops out of the box. And she also gets a dog. But, like, you know, like, it, it depends on... Well, because that, ha- that has to happen in the stage show. But in a movie, like, you know, it makes more sense for the dog to be a lot more incorporated in the show. In the comic, the dog is definitely more incorporated. In. The new songs they put in for the movie. Dumb dog... Sandy's his name, if you please. Let's go to the movies. Sign. And we got Annie. Actually, to go back to the idea of A Christmas Carol being during the summer, actually, I think it's a good idea that A Christmas Carol would be uh, redone and made a story about the 4th of July. Because, uh, you know, you think about January 6th, I think A Christmas Carol-style story about the 4th of July seems kind of important and relevant. Oh, wow, Yeah. Well, and there is a cartoon version of Annie where it does take... Yeah, yeah, yeah. like the like the magic... Like, cause, yeah, because the, the Annie does a Christmas Carol style thing. Yeah, we, we watched that together. That, yeah. was, that was very unique. Yeah. I really wish when I first heard, we'd like to thank you, Mr. Hoover, I thought, why wasn't this put into the movies? And I really hope that it will be come this December. After this message, we'll be right back. Just in case you're looking for the sun to come out tomorrow again, we have returning to NBC for the Christmas release of Annie this year. Yep, December second, Thursday, December second, uh, twenty twenty one, the fourth day of Hanukkah. Uh, definitely, we're gonna have the Apple TV running the men- menorah as we're watching the yes. show. Yeah, Taraji P Henson. Yep, yep, she's gonna be Miss Hannigan, and you might remember Taraji Henson from Boston Legal, Person of Interest, uh, Hidden Figures, uh, Ralph Breaks the Internet, and What Men Want. Well, and also Taraji P. Henson sang in Empire as well. And uh, also, what, uh, Nicole Scherzinger? Yep, Nicole is playing uh, Grace Farrell. And uh, she was in Moana, uh, Ralph Breaks the Internet as well. Uh, the 2017 Dirty Dancing, uh, Rent at the Hollywood Bowl. And, of course, the Pussycat Dolls Saga. And I call it the saga because there are just way too many properties and individual films and individual TV shows to mention. There's too many. And Harry Connick yeah. will be Daddy Warbucks. Oliver Warbucks. Daddy <laughs> Warbucks. And I'm waiting to see if he is man enough to go bald for the role in a way that Jamie was not, apparently. Yeah. And did you see who was Rooster? Oh, yeah, uh, Titus Burgess. Yes, that that is going to be amazing. And you guys all know Titus Burgess from... Um, t- Unbreakable. 
<laughs> yes, the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, definitely. And, <laughs> and the Smurfs, the Lost Village. Uh, 30 Rock, of course. We can't forget 30 mm-hmm. Rock. And uh, Central Park. Yep, definitely. Um, also, Dolomite is my name with Eddie Murphy, right? And he was also in the Angry Birds movie. Roger Caitlin of the Washington Post, 2014 version. When they changed it, they literally changed the story. And in changing the story, I think you deplete the power in the impact of the show. I mean, unless you figure out how to make it fit in a correct way. Right. But, like, I think it's it's sort of really important because, like, I it's not Annie who changes. She does not have the character arc. Oliver Warbucks or Will Stacks has the uh, character growth that occurs, right? You know, like, I wanted a he, not a she, and then... But she was actually what I needed to you know, look at life differently, to be happier. Something was missing. I want to talk about the filming of where this took place. Definitely. It took place for the filming for 1982 at Monmouth College, main campus, Shadow Lawn. Originally was built in 1903 and owned by the head of the Woolworths Corporation. And then it was purchased for the school and... Originally, this hall was named Woodrow Wilson Hall after the president. But last year, due to the uprising that happened post Yeah, social change. Yeah, Yeah, social change in America, thank goodness. It was changed to Great Hall because we shouldn't be naming things after racists. So thank you. Well, like, uh, not just that, just like people that like, uh, probably have been more a detriment to society than an actual help. The bridge that they shot at was over the Passaic River. Both were in New Jersey. The bridge was actually closed in 1972, but then they were able to use it for the filming of the movie. I hope it was still safe. On the other side, they also filmed in Burbank, California at Warner Brothers Studio for Dale Hennessy, who designed the city look to be 1933 NYC. Unfortunately, he didn't make it to the end, and he died in, in the production, and so that street was named after him. It's a nice way to to put a memorial uh, in that story. And in case you think you might see the same street in many movies, you have. It's been in lots of different movies, including the next movie that we'll go over, and that will be Newsies. Disney and ABC, uh, uh, their lots gets put to use. Now we'll move on to reviews. The incomparable buddy film critics... Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel. They were split on this, but not by far. Roger Ebert gave it three out of four stars, stating, I sort of enjoyed the movie. I enjoyed the energy that was visible on the screen and the, yeah, it was palpable. And the sumptuousness of the production numbers and the good humor of several of the performances, especially those by Albert Finney as Daddy Warbucks and Carol Burnett as the wicked orphanage's supervisor, Miss Hannigan. Aileen Quinlan sort of grew on me, too. His partner, Gene Siskel, 
two and a half out of four stars. A bit of a letdown. Quinn often comes across as one of those self-conscious stage kids. The four new songs are not the least bit memorable, but Finney gives the best performance in the film as he steadily turns into a quite wonderful father figure. Yeah, but he can't turn into a wonderful father figure if you don't believe in Annie's performance. Gene Siskel always was more hard on, on movies, I've realized, in listening to reviews no, I- than Roger Ebert. Yeah, uh, it's just that, like, you know, um, you got to recognize that, you know, acting isn't just acting, it's also reacting. And if you have nothing to react against, the whole thing falls apart. Right. So then, ipso facto, Quinn's performance is a lot better than we are giving her credit for, right? Obviously. She literally became like the cartoon depiction of Annie and everyone accepted it. And it wasn't just like, oh, that's weird. It was like, yup, that fits. They did a pretty decent job of making it feel like that 1930s cartoon. The director, John Huston, had never done a musical. I think he did a... You know, a pretty decent job. It, it it seems like the '82 Annie didn't do as well, mm-hmm. even though like it feels like that is like one of the truer Annies. When the Wonderful World of Disney put out the 1999 um, episode, 26 million people saw it, and that was like one of the highest ratings of any TV show around that time. Right. Like, so you have a gross of uh, uh, fifty seven million dollars for the 1982 Annie. Um, uh, 2014 is one hundred and thirty six million dollars. You're thinking about five dollars a movie ticket from 82, nine dollars a movie ticket for 2014. That means eleven point five million viewers for 1982 and only and 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 uh, bumping up to 15 million viewers for 2014. The only the major difference is, is the other ones are a lot more accessible. But not anymore because Disney Plus. The 1999 version was the cheapest. It only cost them $12 million. There's Annie Jr., which is <laughs> right. cut to be a 60-minute production. And then there's even Annie Kids, which is a 30-minute production. Yeah, this, this property has made a, a lot of money. Um, like, that's why Jay-Z is also, you know, did his song around it, too. One thing I want to talk about around the story of Annie uh, specifically is like, you know, like, yes, it's a kid's story. And yes, there's the, the, the junior part and all of that. But like, I feel like it's really important for Annie in order for it to legitimately work has to have a bit of child exploitation in it in one form or another. Like a hard knock life, right, uh, can't exist if there's no sort of exploitation that's happening, right? If it, they're just doing chores, then it doesn't really make sense. It kind of seems silly. It seems like they're whining instead of being like, oh, they know they're being exploited. That's not really cool. Because you would think at some point, Annie, the kind of person that Annie seems to be consistently re- portrayed as, mm-hmm. might sort of say something about the war industrial complex that. Oliver Warbucks engages in. Um, and I feel like that's a, an important conversation to have. Like, uh, how does he defend that, you know? And how, how would she talk about that? There is, in the 1999 version, that sort of denied food as punishment, right? So right after you're never fully dressed without a smile in that film, uh, Kate says, you know, what about our dinner? And Miss Hannigan says, what about it? And Kate says, you didn't give us any. 
And Miss Hannigan says, because I knew you was going to be bad. So I punished you ahead of time. Now scatter. And like, you know, that's definitely hard knock territory. I will say one song that I was disappointed in not being in, besides the, we'd like to thank you, Mr. Hoover, in the 1999 version, was Let's Go to the Movies. Yeah, that's always a fun song. It's sad that wasn't there. And especially because it was sung by Grace, who in the 1999 version was played by Audra fucking McDonald. Yeah, definitely a, a missed opportunity, but I they, they were having enough trouble trying to say that they were an interracial couple, but not trying to scare anybody but around it. But at the it. end, they had to reshoot because they kissed each other, and then they, the censors went, no, you can't have that happen. You have to reshoot the entire thing. The odd thing about the, the grace uh, with Audra McDonald, uh, most of the United States had anti-miscegenation laws, um, in the 1930s, so their marriage wouldn't be legally possible in many states, but luckily, New York was not one of them. Martin Charnin, who passed in 2019, was fairly permissive with his licensing authority. Annie w- has played in 40 countries, and we kind of alluded to uh, Annie being in a lot of countries, right? And it included 35 years straight uh, uh, in Japan and on Broadway in Revival. One thing he said about the 1982 Columbia movie is that he he foolishly gave up the rights to maintain any supervision on the 1982 uh, movie, he says. The money was so extraordinary. It was, you know, Charman's own selfishness allowed Columbia to do what they wanted to without too much input from him. You know, like we said, he, he really liked um, Jay-Z's uh, cover of Hard Not Life, or remix, on rather, on Hard Not Life. On October 27th, 1998, Jay-Z, uh, hip-hop's first billionaire, to the tune of $1.4 billion, released the album Volume 2, Hard Knock Life, featuring the single Hard Knock Life, Ghetto Anthem. Now, remember, Martin wasn't 100% behind the 1982 film or the 1999 film. However, he did truly love Jay-Z's version of A Hard Knock Life. He said Jay-Z found something in a lyric and applied it to his own life, and it was absolutely wonderful, he said, according to The Hollywood Reporter. And in 2002, Austin Powers, gold member with Beyonce, Jay-Z's wife, of course, had Jay's ghetto anthem, Annie's, pitch-modified sample of the song Hard Knock Life, which at the time of its release was the most commercially successful Jay-Z single. Uh, To quote Dr. Evil, Gentlemen, here's the plan. You're going to start a riot, and we're going to walk out the front door. To which Tommy Tiny Debo Listener Jr. responds, Hey man, I know guys on crack that makes more sense than you. And Dr. Evil responds, Really? Let me put it to you this way, cuz... Boom, boom, boom. Uh Boom, boom, boom. Here we go, DMH, y'all. Boom, boom. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Boom, boom, boom. It's a hard knock life for us. It's a hard knock life for us. Instead of treated, we get tricked. Instead of kisses, we get kicked. It's a hard knock life. Without some truth and love to guide, we don't know how to be. With constant rule changes in a strange country. But still with truth, you know it's gonna set us all free. And get us living lives so filled with global empathy. The life and times of Chris and Kevin, people season two. I had to spit and drop some bars and show that we come through. For all my people hanging in the wood and haters too. We'll blow up just like Mr. Carter in his volume two. It's a hard knock life.
So, uh, Kevin, uh, I used today's podcast about Annie as an opportunity to reach out to Meninder Singh, a friend of mine from high school. So Meninder is a multi-instrumentalist, percussionist, and producer based in Chicago. He plays in the band Funkadaisy and has so graciously allowed us to use a song for an outro, so I'm really excited about that. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, definitely. We're going to listen to T-Shirt, and that's going to be awesome. If you want to learn more about Meninder, you can meet Meninder on his path at Meninder.io or, or check out Funkadaisy on Apple Music or Spotify, according to Meninder. Historically, Punjab has regarded even in India as the first line of defense from invasion as it borders the north, northwest. The people of Punjab have predominantly depicted as proud and brave warrior people who gain strength by working the land as farmers. Punji means five and Ab means river. So it is known as the land of five rivers. During partition, a majority of the state of Punjab was made into modern Pakistan, where one of the states of Pakistan that borders India is still known as Punjab. So both India and Pakistan still have Punjab as states. The history is, just to say, that at the time of the original comic strip of Annie, partition had not yet happened. The name was an easy way to cast an image of a foreign or exotic persona where the mystical aspects of India during the 1930s and what was happening with the British Raj reign uh, made its way into the psyche of the West. Yeah, so that's probably how they got that character yeah, yeah. to be drawn yeah. that way and then pro- well, projected that way in the film. Yeah, yeah definitely, definitely. But there, there, are, there are some concerns, 100%. So there would be a little bit of problem around that because the proud and brave Punjabis would not have been servants, but instead masters of the agricultural economies and the protectors of the north. In order to subjugate the population, it was easy enough to depict how the populations were treating their masters or sahibs of the British Empire versus including the imagery of the Sikh leaders who had once united a majority of India in a thriving era of Maharaja Ranjit Singh. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So honestly, the name for the character is less important as the way it's being used, right? Right. Yeah. And um, he even refers to Oliver Warbucks as Sahib. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and in some ways, I think, is that he is an equal. He just chooses to be by Warbucks's side. So the turban is a sign of royalty, and even today in non-Sikh populations, it is used by grooms during the wedding ceremony to distinguish the most important people from the rest. So the jewel on Pujab's uh, turban was a call out to the lineage of the rulers within India who would adorn jewels on their turban, but also to the Arabic mystics who used jewels and crystals for esoteric or spiritual purposes. Like we see in Aladdin with Jafar. And, and the clothing is questionable and could be intermix of Arabic, Indian, and even North African influences. So Sahib translates as master or boss. Those who work as servants, even without the context of slavery in question, refer to their employers as Sahib. If someone wants to know where the heads of the household are or where their employers are or that they are asked, where's your Sahib? So just reducing the term to sir takes out the larger context of the term. Well, and also um, Punjab is played by Jeffrey Holder, who is not Indian. I feel like this gives a really uh, interesting opportunity to just sort of like investigate like, and, and think about like 
that that character and like sort of like what it actually means mm. in the real world because I don't feel like too many people have thought about. It. No, and it's just something that I thought of more recently when watching. But it. like even even like Menender was talking about like you know there's this like positive like strong like role model even though they like got it wrong. At right? least it's representation. Yeah, I mean you got to start somewhere. Notable thing about dry cleaning, uh, Thomas L. Jennings was an American inventor and first African-American patent holder. And guess what? In 1821, Thomas Jennings patented a method for removing dirt and grease from clothing that would lead to today's dry cleaning. Wow, that's really cool. It definitely is. Everywhere in this orphanage is dirty, falling apart and miserable. Seemingly hundreds of girls are under the care of a single, drunk, abusive guardian and get all the sustenance from a meal called mush, served hot and cold. You might be thinking, wow, seems like what this children's home needs is some good old-fashioned, taxpayer-funded, increased state intervention and government regulation. But apparently, we're all wrong. Daddy Warbucks instead. That's the answer. I read this really cool article in the New Statesman by Annie Leskowitz, and uh, yeah, it, it's it's really interesting her thoughts on uh, Annie and sort of the culture of that, the culture of that specific patriotic portrait of capitalism. The orphanage foster care system has a rich history of over two hundred and fifteen years. Did you know that? No. Yeah, isn't that crazy? So on any given day, there are nearly 424,000 children in foster care in the United States. In 2019, over 672,000 children spent time in U.S. foster care. On average, children remain in state care for over a year and a half, and 5% of children in foster care have languished there for five or more years. That's a tough life. Yeah, pretty hard knock, right? So the first orphanage was established in the United States in 1729 to care for white children orphaned by a conflict between Indians and whites at Natchez, Mississippi. Orphanages grew, and between 1830 and 1850 alone, private charitable groups established 56 children institutions in the United States. So the National Child Care Committee, an organization dedicated to the abolition of all child labor, was formed in uh, 1904 by publishing information on the lives and working conditions of young workers. It helped to mobilize popular support for state-level child labor laws. The most sweeping federal law that restricts the employment and abuse of child workers, it's a hard-knock life, right, is the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938. Child labor provisions under FLSA are designed to protect the educational opportunities of youth and prohibit their employment in jobs that are detrimental to their health and safety. FLSA restricts the hours that youth under 16 years of age can work and lists hazardous occupations too dangerous for young workers to perform. By the way, you don't have to work in child welfare or be a parent to help children in foster care. There are a lot of ways to put your valuable abilities to work for raising awareness and advocating on behalf of waiting children. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Everyone has a happy home. There are a lot of kids that are 100% displaced by the COVID uh, epidemic mm-hmm. and uh, uh, unfortunately have lost uh, you know, their parents because of it. 
Um, there are kids that have, you know, uh, survived Ida and all of these other fire and hurricane threats that have happened to our nation. And we have to make sure that we're taking care of our future so that, you know, they don't eventually come back against us because we didn't do anything for them. We don't have another January 6th. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please, please, no, please, no, please, no. So at one point, Annie says that Sandy, uh, is her seeing eye dog, or rather her father's seeing eye dog, right? The service animal movement did not take hold in America until Nashville resident Morris Frank returned from Switzerland after being trained with one of Eustace's dogs, a female German shepherd named Buddy. Frank and Buddy embarked on a publicity tour to convince Americans of the abilities of service animals and the need to allow people with service animals access to public transportation, hotels, and other areas open to public. In 1929, Eustace and Frank co-founded the Seeing Eye School in Nashville, Tennessee. So uh, whenever you see a service animal, you can go ahead and thank Nashville resident Morris Frank. And uh, so the first time they shot Easy Street, um, there was a lot of dancing and they had like a whole choreography thing before they decided to like make it smaller. Um, you know, everybody's flying off back home because they were, they were on break from shooting the film. And so Carol goes off and she actually gets a chin operation. Uh, Carol Burnett was living in Honolulu at the time and she had the dreams of one day having a chin. And she found a doctor that would change that by three millimeters. You know, to help keep the rain from falling down her shirt when it fell on her face. So about two months later, after the original shoot of Easy Street, the producers call everyone back for a reshoot. Carol says, that's great, but I have a new chin now. And the producers say, don't worry about it, don't worry. With all the Miss Hannigan garb, no one will notice. The version of Easy Street you know from the 1982 movie. So the director, John Huston, suggests that they start the reshoot from when Carol comes out of the closet with Annie's locket. And Carol points out to Houston that she would be going into the closet with a chin and coming out of the closet with a different chin. Chin up. Everyone loves the chin up. So because two months ago, she didn't have a chin. So Houston says to her, well, Carol, just come out looking determined. I'm going to come out of this closet with a brand new chin. Carol Burnett said that it was one of the greatest directions she ever received. So let's move on to references. And the first one we'll do is... Hudson School for Girls, which as far back I could see is it's a prison in Hudson in 1877 as the house of refuge for women, uh, as the first reformatory for women. Then in 1904, the reformatory closed and became the New York State Training School for Girls. Oh, okay. Once the largest juvenile detention center for girls in the country. Oh, wow. All right. Its most famous resident. Jazz singer Ella Fitzgerald. Oh, really? Wow. Had been prohibited from singing in school's choir in the 1930s because she was black. Yeah, that seems to be a theme in America. I don't know why. Yeah, racism. <laughs> You're thinking about Billie Holiday, this yeah. like amazing singer, and then Ella Fitzgerald, obviously also another amazing singer. They're both told you can't even sing. The Chrysler Building, Art Deco skyscraper on the east side of Manhattan at intersection of 42nd Street and Lexington Avenue. No, at 1,046 feet, 319 meters, it is the tallest brick building in the world with a steel framework. And it was the world's tallest building for 11 months 
after its completion in 1930. Mickey Finn started in Chicago around the 1900s. Michael Finn would slip someone basically a roofie. Oh, I, I had no idea. A Mickey Finn. Okay. Yeah. Sandy is Greek in origin, meaning defender of man. Fifi, a popular name for poodles, bringing to mind the ultimate in femininity. Rover was made popular by a 1905 British short film, Rescued by Rover. And as of right now, the top three dogs' names are divided by gender, with one, Bella slash Bailey, two, Lucy slash Max, three, Molly slash Charlie. So in case you're wondering what to name your dog and want a popular dog name, there you go. The Asp... We did talk about him a little bit, but we'll just talk about the other bodyguard and chauffeur to Oliver Warbucks alongside Punjab from the original comics as an Asian man played in the 1982 movie by Roger Minami. The Mona Lisa, painted in 1503 by Leonardo da Vinci, with the original on display at the Louvre Museum in Paris since 1797. Rockefeller, a rich family headed with John Davidson Rockefeller, made his money in oil as a Republican and philanthropist. When Annie took place, he would have been very old and close to death since he died in 1937 at 97 years old. By 1977, the Rockefellers were considered one of the most powerful families in American history. Another one, Vanderbilt. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's uh, Anderson Cooper's lineage, right? Yes. So... (laughs) Dating back to Cornelius Vanderbilt, America's first great tycoon in New York City around the 1800s with investments in shipping and railroads, of course, real estate. The most famous descendant is, of course, somewhere between either Gloria Vanderbilt or now Anderson Cooper on CNN. DuPont, another rich American family from France. I actually um, went to the University of Miami, and there was a DuPont there. Oh, really? Yeah. Descendants. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I know, I know. There's, like, money everywhere except for in my pocket. All right. (laughs) This one dates back to Pierre Samuel DuPont de Numeras. His fortune was in gunpowder, chemicals, and the automotive industry. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And so DuPont and GM are alongside business partners now. However, their name was more recently brought into criminal court cases, one that is depicted in the 2014 movie Foxcatcher with Steve Carell and Vanessa Redgrave. Oh, wow. Carnegie, Andrew Carnegie, Republican, started the family fortune in steel and set up money roughly about $5.2 billion in 2020. For various philanthropic causes, Carnegie gave formal allegiance to the Republican Party, though he was said to be a violent opponent of some of the most sacred doctrines of the party. Hey, Kevin, how do you get to build something like Carnegie Hall? You practice. No money. After selling Carnegie Steel... He surpassed John D. Rockefeller as the richest American for the next several years. Bolsheviks, Russian radical far-right left founded by Vladimir Lenin. Yeah, they they randomly attack 
they they randomly attack Daddy Warbucks yes. while he's just like doing his casual business stuff. And as <laughs> the would-be assassin is dragged out of Oliver Warbucks's, he is singing a French song written in June 1871 by Eugene Potier that was translated into more than 16 different languages. It's called The International. It's translated to Get Up, Branded by the Cause, The Whole World is Hungry and Slaves, Our Mind is Boiling Indignant, and Ready to Fight to the Death. We will destroy the whole world of violence to the ground, and then we are ours. We will build a new world who was nobody, he will become everything. It's like, I, I, I guess, I guess. But, I mean, Daddy Warbucks isn't the government. The Republican kind of slant gets into this because... Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, if anything, they would be doing it towards FDR, who was right. in the picture, who was in the piece. Yeah, no, like, legitimately, it would have so, happened not to Daddy Warbucks by himself, but while he was with FDR, right. that would make the most that sense. Lily St. Regis, played by Bernadette Peters and Kristen Chenoweth. Bernadette Peters is, of course, the 1982 version. Kristen Chenoweth is the 1999 version. St. Regis Hotel and Resorts, now a part of Marriott International, built by John Jacob Astor IV, in 1904, as a sister property to his part-owned Waldorf Astoria Hotel, where it was at the pinnacle of luxury and technology, with each room having a phone in it. Betty Davis, stage and screen acting legend who acted for more than 50 years. In 1962, Betty Davis became the first woman to secure 10 Academy Award nominations for acting. Following her death, she attracted a following in gay subculture. Journalist Jim Emerson wrote, Was she just a camp figurehead because her brittle, melodramatic style of acting hadn't aged well? Or was it that she was larger than life? A tough broad who had survived? Probably some of both. Robert Taylor, a television film star from 1934 to 69, taking over for Ronald Reagan on a television series. I, I, I'm sure it got better because I feel like Ronald Reagan is kind of unremarkable as an actor. I don't know. Greta Garbo, Swedish-American actress from 1920 to 41, nicknamed The Divine because of her whimsical attitude and her willingness to avoid the press. Although she was almost married to John Gilbert, the idea for Gene Hagen's character in Singing in the Rain, Lena Lamont... She was actually a lesbian. After beating breast cancer in 1984, she sadly died in 1990 of pneumonia. She was portrayed by Betty, writer of Singing in the Rain, Comden, in the film Garbo Talks, 1984. The Marx Brothers, Chico, Leonard, Joseph, Harpo, Adolf, or after 1911, Arthur, Groucho, Julius Henry, Gummo, Milton, Zeppo, Herbert Manfred. It's unfortunately, that's an alphabetical because Gummo is usually not the one mentioned before Zeppo. Yeah. <laughs> that's fun. Sons of Jewish immigrant from Germany and France who would be comedy gold. <laughs> yeah, they would. 
the the amount of times that it's played in a, a summer in the park movie showing, right? Mm-hmm. Like the different Marx Brothers films. Chaplin. Charlie Chaplin, internationally renowned silent film star, composer, and filmmaker, mainly known for City Lights, Modern Times, and The Great Dictator, to name a few. He played Donald Trump? Lloyd, Harold Clayton Lloyd, comedic actor and stuntman, 1913-63, alongside Chaplin and Buster Keaton. Mickey Mouse, created in 1928, standing at 2 feet 3 inches by Walt Disney himself. Shirley Temple Black, married name, Republican, former chief of protocol in the United States and child film star. Yeah. Ambassador to Jackie Cooper, also a film star making a transition from adult acting to directing from 1929 to 1990, including playing Perry White in Superman movies. Oh, wow. Radio City Music Hall. Designed by Edward Durrell Stone and Donald Desky, opened in 1932. Movies with a stage show stopped being shown in 1979, but still will show the occasional one for a big movie premiere like The Lion King. Rockettes, Russell Market inspired by John Tiller's British precision-based dance group, The Tiller Girls, started in Missouri Rockets in St. Louis. Girls had to be 5'2 to 5'6, then change to 5'6 to 10 and a half, and be proficient in tap, modern, jazz, and ballet. S.L. Roxy Rothfell renamed them the Roxyettes, but later changed it to Rockettes to go along with Radio City Music Hall by 1934. Camille, Margaret Booth, the supervising editor for Annie, also worked as the original editor of Camille. Oh, that's awesome. Sam Goldwyn, a.k.a. Samuel Goldfish, film producer partnered with Edgar and Archibald Selwyn, then changing his name to Goldwyn to combine names. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for the production company. Bo Brummelly, George Byron Bo Brummel, go-to for men's fashion and friend at one time of future King George IV. Rembrandt, a Dutch Golden Age painter yes. of the 17th century known for portraits, self-portraits. Duesenberg, an American luxury and racing car Made from 1913 to 1937, thanks to the Depression, they folded. J. Edgar Hoover. John Edgar Hoover was the first director of the FBI. He was reported by Ethel Merman, friend, to be gay. Oh, yeah, she might know that. Yeah, I think she would. (laughs) Not a cross-dresser, though. Because that has to be... Two things that come together. Well, so with J. Edgar Hoover, there was a rumor about him being a crossdresser. We are unfortunately reminded of him more so for being a racist control freak who ruined lots of people's lives. <gasps> You're making me pearl clutch. So another crazy racist man. <laughs> Photoplay, one of the first film fan magazines based in Chicago that started in 1911, ending in 1980. True story. Truth is stranger than fiction. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I super agree with that now. 
first in the confessions genre of magazines founded in 1919. During the Great Depression, the emphasis lay on feminine behavior, maternity, marriage, and stoic endurance. Stoic endurance is the best part. Steel Horizons, an automotive manufacturing magazine around 1930s to 1970s, F.A.O. Schwartz, founded in 1862 by Frederick August Otto Schwartz, as a premier toy store for more interactive experience of buying toys of all ages. Broadway Lullaby, what Annie was taken to in 1999, not a real thing, but a take on the 42nd Street song. Imperial Theater, opened Christmas 1923, Architect Herbert Crapp replacing the Lyric Theater. And in 1933, we're playing Of Thee I Sing, Let Them Eat Cake. FDR, Harry Truman took over. Previous to him was Herbert Hoover. Right, yeah, Hoover was definitely problematic. Really showing us the way there. Yeah, it's like, seems like it's like uh, corruption and cleanup, right? And FDR in August of 1921. He came down with Agulhian-Barre syndrome, thought at the time polio, which paralyzed him from the waist down, but was hardly photographed in a wheelchair. Funny that the person, Edward Herman, who played him in the 1982 version, played him also in another movie. Oh, wow. So he got got a chance to do FDR twice, huh? Yeah. Also, Alan Cumming. Yeah who was in the 1999 version as a rooster. Also played FDR in Reefer Madness, right? Exactly. <laughs> Even referenced Annie. And if you notice, this podcast is just a little bit longer because Annie's pretty beefy. Annie's a beefy musical and has a lot of history and a lot of things connected to it. We didn't want to skimp on all that beautiful Annie content. Because it's n- despite what people may think, it's not a fluff musical. It really isn't if you think about it, right? Like, it's talking about some really serious things... Well, folks, you have done it again. You have uh, made it through another great TMH, Talking Musical History podcast. And we will be leaving you today uh, with the lovely sounds of Funkadaisy uh, from my great friend Menender. And I'm really happy and joyful to share this with you. Uh, Until the next time we meet, I'm Chris. And I'm Kevin. And remember, learn from our story. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.